Well, thanks, guys. Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Andrew, and I serve as one of the pastors here, and I have the privilege of leading us through our study of the scriptures today as we continue our Advent celebration. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab those. Open up to Luke chapter 1. As you're finding your way there, I just remind you of a, a film that came out in 2011. It was a Martin Scorsese film called Hugo. And Hugo was a young or- orphan boy who took care of the giant clocks in 1930s Paris. And so he's up there, he's in hiding, nobody knows he is there. And before he started doing that, he shared a very tender relationship with his father until his father died tragically in a fire. And so after that, life for him became a lot more challenging as he was orphaned. He had to scrounge around for scraps of food. He had to figure out how to survive in Paris during that day. And he would even take it upon himself to steal parts from toy stores that he could take and use to help build and restore a mechanical man that he and his father would work on together. And he has a friend named Isabel who was also an orphan, both of these children around the age of 12. And one day they were hanging out in the tower of, uh, of the train station clock that loomed over Paris and They began to have a conversation, and so referring to the head librarian of Paris, Hugo made the statement, he's got real purpose. And that statement grabbed Isabel's attention, and so she asked, what what do you mean? And Hugo said, everything has a purpose, even machines. Clocks tell the time, trains take you to places. They do what they are meant to do. Maybe that's why broken machines make me sad. They can't do what they're meant to do. Maybe it's the same with people. That if you lose your purpose, it's like you're broken. And when he used that word broken, that grabbed Isabel's attention. And she began to recall her godfather, who was a a bitter man at the time. Because he, in many ways, lost his dreams uh, by circumstances and difficult challenges that he faced in life. He was a man without a purpose. And so Hugo says to her, well, maybe we can fix him. And she responded, well, is that your purpose, fixing things? Hugo said, I I don't know, but it is what my father did. Isabel then asked, I wonder what my purpose is. Maybe if I'd known my parents, I would know my purpose. It was just a really heavy moment in this film where you could just feel an undercurrent of anxiety and aimlessness because we know that a root cause, certainly not the total cause, but a root cause for so much anxiety and for so much struggle in our lives as we journey through this world, it arises when our lives seem to be lacking purpose. They seem to lack meaning. They seem to lack a productive direction. And there are many people in our society who do not have a a necessary infrastructure of relationships to help guide them towards living a life of purpose and meaning. They lack parents. They lack community. They lack peers. They lack mentors. And as a result, their lives are lacking purpose. But even as we kind of step back and think about that, we know that those who might have that necessary infrastructure, that just having that relational network doesn't guarantee a life of meaning and a life of purpose because a person's life might not be guided in the right direction. It might not be shepherded towards the purpose for which they were created and why they exist on this planet. And so existential crises of varying degrees ensue that prevent people from experiencing a type of peace, 
a type of rest in the soul. Now, part of the problem with this is that I believe we live in a culture that prioritizes the pursuit of happiness over the pursuit of purpose. That we are more dialed into trying to make ourselves happy. And when we are so focused on making ourselves happy, our lives get really, really small. The borders of our lives shrink and life becomes all about me, myself, and I. What can I do to find happiness? What can I do to be uh, happy in this world? But if we're going to talk about purpose, if we're going to talk about meaning, that requires that we not just think about ourselves, but we think about those around us. The idea of purpose and meaning broadens the borders and the boundaries of our lives so that we are seeking to encompass and to include many people into a life of purpose and passion. There was an article that was posted not too long ago about this happiness craze that is sweeping our culture and how so many books over the past 50 years have been written on the topic of happiness. Titles like Happy Money or Happiness for Beginners or The Happiness Advantage, that litter bookstore shelves. It's everywhere we look. But a study came out arguing that the pursuit of happiness should not be a person's goal because a pursuit of happiness shrinks our lives. No, this article would argue that it's the pursuit of purpose that matters. It's the pursuit of meaning. The authors of the study write, happiness without meaning characterizes a relatively shallow, self-absorbed, or even selfish life in which things go well, needs and desires are easily satisfied, but difficult or taxing entanglements are avoided. And so we avoid difficult or taxing entanglements by shrinking our lives and not trying to live the life that is other-oriented, that considers the welfare and the well-being of those around us. The pursuit of happiness is all about me, whereas the pursuit of purpose and meaning that declares it's all about we. And so we're trying to figure out ways to be other-oriented. And that's where we believe as followers of Jesus that purpose is found. And this type of purpose is something that many people are lacking. As so many lives are just drifting through this world, they're not tethered to anything eternal. They're not tethered to anything significant or substantial. And so what I want us to do today is look at this passage in Luke chapter 1. As we come to the end of this chapter, which I feel like we've been in this chapter for about four years, it's a long chapter, about 80 verses, and we come now to the final stretch of this chapter, and at its core, at the heart of this passage is simply a father tethering his newborn child to the purposes of God. A father who's providing an anchor for his child who will grow up in a fallen world, but an anchor that will hold him in place in the purposes of God. This is essentially what Zechariah is doing. As you know, we've seen the past few weeks that Zechariah is married to a woman named Elizabeth. For a long time, they desired a child, but they were prevented from having one until the time was right. And the Lord gave them the blessing of a child. And here comes John the Baptist and they're all celebrating this moment, welcoming John into the world. And now we're told at the beginning of verse 67 that Zechariah, his father, stands up and he begins to speak. Look at verse 67. It says, Then his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. I just kind of hang out right there as we consider the role of the Holy Spirit, because the role of the Holy Spirit, or the Holy Spirit, plays a prominent role all throughout Luke's gospel. 
In this gospel, there are about 17 references to the Spirit of God or the Holy Spirit, which is more than Matthew or Luke or Matthew or Mark or John. But then you keep reading past Luke and into the book of Acts, which is the second volume to this gospel, telling the story of the church. And there you're going to find 56 references to the Holy Spirit and the role that he plays in the purposes of God. And Luke is very clear to point out and to call out that the purposes of God will not be fulfilled apart from the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. So every chance Luke's get, Luke gets, he's accenting this because he doesn't want Christians, he doesn't want people like Theophilus to whom this gospel was addressed to lose sight of the fact that we are utterly reliant upon the Holy Spirit. We must be filled by him in order to do what we're created to do. We must be filled by him in order to grow in the redemption that is ours in Christ. And so he's accenting and underscoring this time and time again. If you recall the number of references to the Holy Spirit up to this point, that the Holy Spirit was responsible for uh, Elizabeth's womb being opened up so that John the Baptist could be born. It was the Holy Spirit who empowered Mary to be conceived and give birth to the Messiah, to Jesus it's the Holy Spirit that allowed John the Baptist to kick and move when, when he came into the presence of Mary and knowing that the Christ child within, was in her womb. John the Baptist starts leaping for joy all in response to the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that would transform mute Zechariah into a prophet. This man who hasn't spoken in nine months because of his disobedience and his faithlessness. Now he's come back around. He's in the right frame of mind, filled with the Holy Spirit, and he begins to speak once again. In the next chapter, you're going to see the Holy Spirit filling up a guy named Simeon and a woman named Anna, both of whom would prophesy and declare beautiful truths about God's will and purposes and ways we're going to keep reading in Luke's gospel and we're going to see the grown Jesus being baptized by his cousin John the Baptist. And in that moment, we're told that as Jesus was coming up out of the water, that the Holy Spirit descended upon him like a dove. And then the rest of his life and ministry in this world would be lived in a conscious dependence upon the Spirit of God in his life. You know, I think sometimes when we think about Jesus, we tend to think about him as though he's Superman pretending to be Clark Kent. We think, well, he is the God-man, so he has an advantage over us when it comes to living a life of faith, living a life relying upon the presence and the power of God. That he is just Superman pretending to be Clark Kent, and so he has an advantage. But I would remind you one of the major truths of the incarnation, of the fact that God took on flesh and he dwelt among us. When that happened, we're told in Philippians chapter 2 that, that Jesus sort of muted his divine nature. That he did not take advantage of his deity when he was performing miracles. He did not take advantage of his deity when he was living a life of obedience. We're told in Philippians chapter 2 that, that, that we are to adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. Though Jesus existed in the form of God, he did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited or something to be taken advantage of. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And the likeness of humanity is such where we are utterly dependent upon the Spirit of God to be the people of God, fulfilling the purposes of God. This is how Jesus lived. He showed us what it meant and what it looked like to rely upon the Holy Spirit. So Jesus would say in the Gospel of John, I only do what I see my Father doing. 
Or how was he aware of what his father was doing? Well, there was some abiding taking place in his soul. There was a sensitivity to the Spirit of the Lord in his life that would prompt him and compel him and tune him in to what God is doing. And we are told in Philippians 2 to adopt the same attitude, to also live a life that is, in a sense, utterly reliant upon the Spirit of God. But to do that requires humility. To do that requires faith. And so the role of the Holy Spirit in Luke's gospel cannot be understated. It must be underscored time and time again. So Zechariah, this father, is filled with the Holy Spirit. And as he's empowered by the Spirit, he stands up to speak. And what he speaks is the story of God. As Zechariah begins to reveal the story of God in that moment. Now, as we read his words here, understand that Zechariah doesn't say anything necessarily new. He doesn't say anything new. What he says is ancient. The story he is telling is one that has been unfolding in the world for a really, really long time. As he's empowered by the Holy Spirit, he's telling the story of God, the one that the Holy Spirit inspired and preserved and promoted through the prophets of the Old Testament. But the whole point of his words in this passage, or at least the immediate impact of his words, were to tether his newborn child to the purposes of God were to frame his son's life in such a way that he could grow up with purpose, he could grow up with meaning, he could grow up with peace. You know, one of the most important roles that a parent or a guardian or even a community of faith like ours, one of the most important roles we have is the role of tethering young ones to the plan and the purposes of God. By helping little ones find their place in this chaotic world in God's purposes and in God's plans. This is what we do as moms and dads and guardians. This is what we do as mentors and disciple makers. We invest in young ones so that they might be tethered to the plans of God and not be drifting around being pushed by every wind and wave of circumstance and situation that can cause people to feel anxious and aimless and purposeless in this life. So one of the things that you and I have to fight against as followers of Jesus, one of the things that we pretty much have to resist because it is so prominent in our culture is that our culture puts a big premium, a high premium on what's called self-discovery. That everyone is out to discover themselves in some discernible way and usually the self-discovery process involves someone growing up and then cutting themselves off from the people who invested in them in their childhood and then going on their own way to discover what life is really about and to discover what they really believe and to discover who they really are. And so they go on some Odysseus journey of self-discovery. But as followers of Jesus who are committed to the plans and the purposes of God, who see the role that Zechariah would play in his son's life, It would lead you and I to reject the process of self-discovery and to commit to what's called a shepherded discovery. That we are to help young ones, guide young ones, lead young ones to find their place in the plans and the purposes of God. That it is our role to help people grow up and become spiritually strong the way John the Baptist is described in verse 80, that he grew up and became spiritually strong. Why? Well, It seems that part of the reason is because Zechariah loved him enough to tether him to the story of God. 
He did not allow any other narrative in the surrounding culture, whether it was a narrative coming out of Rome or a narrative coming out of a Christless Judaism. He did not allow any other narrative to frame his son's understanding of life in this world. The narrative he promoted was the narrative of God's redemption. It was the narrative of God's activity, his plans, and his purposes. And this is what we do for our young ones as we frame life for them so they can come to see what life in this world is supposed to be all about, that we are created for the glory of God. We're redeemed for the glory of God. So we're now living for the glory of God. Of God. Then you keep going in the passage. After Zechariah, we're told, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. Listen to his words. He said, Blessed is the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and provided redemption for his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. The horn of salvation is an Old Testament metaphor for the Messiah. It refers to strength, that the strength of an animal is the horn. Well, the strength of the salvation would come through the servant, of da- through his servant David. Just as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets in ancient times. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of those who hate us. He has dealt mercifully with our fathers and remembered his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. He has given us the privilege, since we have been rescued from the hand of our enemies, to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness, in his presence all our days. And you, child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Everything that Zechariah is speaking here as he rehearses and recounts the story of God, the story of redemption, everything he says is in light of something that's already been written. Because ultimately, the story of redemption has already been written. It's already been determined. This is why when you read through the passage, notice that Zechariah is talking about the future as if it's already happened. He speaks of the future as though it's already transpired. Just underline some of those phrases. When it says God has visited, provided redemption, raised up a horn of salvation. Understand that Jesus hasn't even been born yet. And he's talking about he's already been raised up. He says, God has dealt mercifully. He's remembered his holy covenant, been rescued from the hands of our enemies. He's speaking about the future as though it's already happened because he's a part of a story that's already been written. When it comes to the life of faith, this is what we do. The life of faith lives in light of what God has already, of the story that God has already written. And so we can talk about the future as though it's already happened. This is where hope ceases to become wishful thinking for the Christian, but hope becomes a blessed assurance, a deep conviction that life is going to work out well in the end. And so he's talking about a story that's already been written, but if you notice down in verse 76, he turns his attention to the to the baby, and he says, and you, child, and he speaks directly to John the Baptist, and he begins to prophesy over the role John the Baptist is going to play in this story. And so as he's telling the story, this is what you're seeing happen. You have this story that has already been written, but now he's pointing out that this story is being realized and will be realized in John the Baptist's life. He's tying a tether to John the Baptist. 
And this is essentially what we do every time we make disciples. Anytime we introduce people to identify with Jesus and to become a follower of Christ, we're tying them with a tether that puts them in this story so that they can live their lives with the assurance of talking about the future as if it's already happened. And so the tether I'm talking about is a tether of faith where we put our faith in Christ and then we start saying things definitively. We can say things like, you know, I have been forgiven. And I can say I have been forgiven knowing that I'm referring to sins I haven't even committed yet. That's what it means to speak of the future as if it's already happened. And this is how John, how Zechariah is speaking in this story. This is how we speak in the moments of realizing this story in our lives and finding our place in it. So a life of faith is one that speaks about the future as if it's already happened. And there is a moment when you become a Christian and all of a sudden you start talking about the future in this kind of way. And you can say things like, I have been saved. I have been rescued from my enemies. I have been forgiven. And that includes forgiveness of sins that you haven't even committed in this life yet. This is the beauty of the life of faith found in the story of redemption. But then as we consider this story that has already been written, one that is being realized in the present moment of Zechariah's interaction with John the Baptist, we also rest in the fact that this is a story that will be completed. That the story of redemption will draw to a close. That there is coming a day when faith will no longer be necessary because our faith will become sight. There is coming a day when the future becomes our present full reality when the story is completed. And one of the things that brings peace to the believer is knowing how the story of redemption is going to be completed. How it's going to end. I remember reading uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe to my daughter Delaney when she was about four or five years old. And it was, we were working through it, I think, the second time. So she knew how the story was going to end. Now, the first time we read through that story, I could see her tensing up and getting unsettled and nervous about the plot that was unfolding as we were reading it together. And, and it wasn't a very comfortable situation for her. She felt the tension of not knowing how the story was going to end. But then when we read the story the second time, she responded differently. She didn't grow tense. She didn't grow anxious. She didn't start squirming in her seat or covering her face up with her covers. Instead, she said, Dad, you know, I'm not nearly as nervous this time around. And I said, well, why aren't you as nervous? And she said, well, when you know how the story is going to end, you don't have to be nervous. And I remember thinking to myself, that, that's more true than you realize and I use that opportunity to talk about the story of redemption, talk about real life, to frame her perspective then, to show her, look, this same peace that you have now as this plot is unfolding is the same peace you can have when you're 25 years old and you don't know what job you're going to take. Because no matter how things unfold circumstantially in this life, ultimately the story is going to end really, really well for us. And so we begin to frame the story of redemption for our young ones, for our little ones, helping them to see what we see in the gospel. Now, if you've ever read through the Chronicles of Narnia, it's a, it's a great journey. It's something you should do if you haven't done it already. And I love how C.S. Lewis completes that series. You come to the seventh and final book titled The, the Last Battle, and you get to the final paragraphs of what he has written, this, this life work of, of 
allegorizing the Christian faith through this form of story. And, and you get to the end of it and listen to what he writes, how he completes that story. He says, and as he, referring to Aslan, who was the Christ figure, and as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can mostly truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was, the only, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. See, when the story of redemption is complete and all is made right and all of the enemies of God are placed beneath his feet, when sin, suffering, sickness, and Satan are all wiped from this existence, when that happens, all will be well. And that's when life really gets started for us. That's when things really start to unfold for us in a realized sense. Things are going to get really, really good for us when that day comes. But the question then is, well, how do we live in light of that now? Where do we go to, to make our felt sense in this world a part of that future reality of this story that has been written, that is being realized, that will one day be completed? How am I to be filled with the Holy Spirit so that I might find my place in the purposes of God and help others do the same? We'll come to the final words that Zechariah would speak over John the Baptist. Look at verse 78. He goes on to say, Because of our God's merciful compassion, the dawn from on high will visit us to shine on those who live right now in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide right now our feet into the way of peace. And so he uses this metaphor in verse 38 of the dawn from on high that will visit us. Now that metaphor of the dawn, this is a metaphor for the coming of Jesus. He's talking about Advent. He's talking about the coming of Christ in the world. That when Christ comes, it's going to be like the sun is starting to rise and you can see it on the horizon. He's drawing from Malachi chapter 4 verse 2 where the prophet says, But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And you will go out and playfully jump like calves from the stall. That's a beautiful image. I don't know if you've ever been on a farm and seen calves come out of the stall in the early morning. And they come leaping out and they're stretching their legs. They're so full of joy. They're so full of life. They're not fearful or fretful. They're, they are at peace. And so they're just leaping with joy. Well, this is what we are called to as followers of Jesus, to live in the light of Christ to find hope, to find a joy, to find a sense of peace that will allow us to leap and to live with purpose and passion, with freedom and joy. And so we want to live in the light of Christ because the light of Christ is what provides our lives with purpose. We are to see ourselves in the light of who Christ is. We are to see ourselves in light of what Christ is about. This is what Zechariah is telling John the Baptist. 
He tells him, look, you will be called a prophet and you are going to prepare the way for the Lord, that you are to see yourself in reference to Christ. And when you and I learn to see ourselves in reference and in relation to Christ, that's when we find purpose. That's when the light begins to shine, dispelling the darkness, and we can live with a sense of meaning and purpose. All of a sudden, our meaning and our purpose isn't restricted to an earthly vocation. All of a sudden, our meaning and our purpose becomes much bigger and much broader. Therefore, if you lose your job, you don't lose your purpose. Therefore, if you are fired from what you're doing Monday through Friday, that doesn't mean meaning has been ripped out of your life. Because you are to see yourself in the light of Christ and your purpose, your meaning is tied to who he is and what he is about. Now, vocations and jobs are important. And as those who are investing in the next generation and raising them up, we want them to make good choices, to find good jobs, good careers. We want them to be wise and faithful in that. But we don't want our kids to define their life story by their vocation. Because when identity is tied to vocation, then when you lose your vocation, you lose your sense of self, everything begins to fall apart. But what we do is we tether ourselves to something much bigger. We tether ourselves to something much brighter. We live in the light of Christ. Now, darkness can be dangerous. Darkness can keep a person from getting where they need to go and from doing the things that they need to do. I learned this the hard way a couple of days ago. I was doing some work in my office, and the sun went down. It kind of got, you know, it gets dark early here in the Pacific Northwest this time of year. And so it got really dark, and the lights were out in the sanctuary. So when I came out of the office carrying a few chairs, I couldn't see a thing. But I just figured I've been in this room long enough that I can find my way around. So I just took off walking as if I knew what I was doing. But I forgot that this is a stage. And so I'm carrying these chairs, and next thing I know, I just take one false step, and I just bust it. I fall flat on my face. The chairs go flying. My ear pods burst out my ears, and I'm just laying there on the floor wondering what just happened. I didn't know which way was up, and I thought maybe Jake was in the office, but apparently he didn't hear anything, or maybe he had his earbuds in because nobody came out to rescue me, and I'm just sitting there in the dark. I have to force myself up. I get up, and I, get, and I grab the chairs that I could fill with my hands and I run to the light switch and I turn it on. A couple days later, I woke up with a stiff back and a neck. I had a hard time turning. To... It was a bad moment because darkness can be dangerous. And you know that when our lives are lacking direction, when they're not being guided with a purpose that is eternal and substantial, a purpose that isn't shallow and narrow, but one that is broad and encompassing of others, we can stumble and bumble our way and cause a lot of harm bring a lot of difficulty into our lives unnecessarily. We might find ourselves looking like Isabel's godfather who lost his purpose and was considered broken because he had a career ambition that wasn't realized. A career that he thought would make him happy. But it wasn't a career that could bring real lasting meaning and purpose. And so the call of Zechariah for all of us is to step out into the light of Christ because it's in relationship with Jesus where we find our life's purpose. And when you find your life's purpose, that's when you find your life's peace. And you don't have to be anxious about where your life is going and what you are to be doing. You can glorify Christ whether you have a job or whether you don't. 
whether you are married or single, whether you are young or old, no matter where you are in your circumstances of life, you still have meaning, you still have purpose because it is the light of Christ that you are living in. It is the light of Christ that you are living under. This is what John the Baptist did. It's for another reason why he's such a good example for us to follow. It's another reason why Jesus would refer to John as a great man. And one of the things that made him great was that he knew what his purpose was. And he didn't abandon his purpose in some misguided pursuit of happiness. Had he done that, he probably would have lived past 40. But if you know John the Baptist's story, he doesn't make it to 40. Because John the Baptist lived out his purpose. He prepared the way for the Lord. And part of that preparation was to point people in Jesus' direction to the point where the rulers and the power players of that day killed him. And they removed his head from his body. Now, you cannot say that he was driven by a pursuit of happiness. Because if he was, he could have made different decisions. He could have done life completely differently. He could have made choices to prevent himself from being beheaded by Herod. But he doesn't do that. He wasn't wrapped up in a pursuit of some earthly happiness. He was, the pursu- he was in the pursuit of some eternal meaning and purpose, and that's what he pursued. And so even though his life ended prematurely, he did not die without purpose, and his life did not die without meaning. And in this way, he's going to call our attention to the Christ child even more. You know, not long after Jesus grew up and he went out and met with John the Baptist in the wilderness, being baptized, he comes up out of the water, the spirit of the dove comes upon him, the Holy Spirit fills him up in, in, a, in a noticeable way. And when that happens, he hears a voice from heaven. His heavenly father speaks, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And he speaks that over his son, framing life for him so that his son would then live his life underneath the smile of his heavenly father, seeking to honor his heavenly father in everything that he said and in everything that he did. And then there came a moment where Jesus goes into the garden of Gethsemane and he begins to pray through what his father wanted him to do. Now, Jesus knew that what the father wanted him to do was going to be hard. So hard that he began to sweat drops of blood as he felt so much stress and strain worrying about the cross and thinking about what he would soon suffer and endure. And so he cries out to his father. He says, Abba, if there's any other way for people to be saved, if there's any other way for your story of redemption to come to a, to a climax, if there's any other way, then, then let this cup pass from me. But what's so remarkable about Jesus is Life in that moment and how the father treated him is that the father refused to answer that request. The father was more committed to his son's calling than to his son's comfort. And as moms and dads, as guardians, as a community of faith, we too must be more committed to people's calling than to their comfort. And so the father did not take that cup from Jesus. Jesus then stood, resolved to obey his father, to fulfill his calling. He steps out of the garden only to be met by a Roman cohort that would arrest him, that would try him, that would crucify him, that would bury him in a tomb. But Jesus was a man whose life had meaning. He was a man whose death had purpose. 
which was why three days after his crucifixion, the sun would rise. And the dawn from on high would appear on the horizon again as Jesus would step out of the tomb, defeating sin, Satan, and death. Step out of the tomb, defeating all of the enemies of all of God's people forever, fully, and finally. In that moment, Jesus stepped out of the grave so that his light may shine on all those who would trust in him. So that his light would shine upon all those who would come to him for life and salvation, for forgiveness, for freedom, for all who would come to Jesus and find their purpose and find their peace in reference to him. And so we have a Jesus who showed us what it means to be more committed to your calling than to your comfort. We have John the Baptist who showed us what it means to be more committed to calling than to comfort. We have in them examples of what it means to pursue meaning and purpose, not momentary happiness. And so we want to be the kinds of people whose borders aren't narrow. The kinds of people who aren't pursuing some earthly happiness that makes life all about me. We want to be the kinds of people who, brought, who opens up wide and lives the kind of lives that benefits and blesses others. That's what Jesus did. That's what John the Baptist did. This is what all who live in the light of Christ will do. We find purpose and peace in knowing that life isn't about us. We find purpose and peace when we find that life is all about Christ. And he's good to all of his people. And no matter what following him might lead us into in this life, we know that he's going to lead us through. Because the story of redemption has already been written. The story of redemption is being realized even now as we play our parts in the world. And the story of redemption will be completed. And all's going to end well. So we say, come what may, this is our story. This is our life. This is what we are about. 